Today, um, before we get into the tradition that is the Super Bowl, isn't it great that we can get together and worship together and get into the Word together? And what better place to be in on a, on a day like today than the Passover in Exodus chapter 12? Um, so we're going to take, I would say a minute, but it's probably going to take about seven minutes to, to read Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 52 together. And then I'm just going to hopefully communicate some thoughts from this passage that will be helpful. God's word, of course, is helpful and life-changing, and uh, we'll pray that God somehow takes this and illuminates something into our hearts through his spirit that would change our lives and draw us closer to him. Amen? So Exodus chapter 12, uh, let's begin to read together in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. When they shall take some of the blood, I'm sorry, then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, and the lintel of the houses which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of, the, none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This, in this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day, I, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. 
In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Wherever he is a sojourner, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, he shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel in the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians." so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sekoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them in very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in the house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not 
break any of its bones. All of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. The stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would take this passage and that you would teach us. God, I ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would remind us of your story, of your truth, the truth of the Lamb of God. Draw us closer to you, change our hearts, give us perspective, cause a greater understanding of your word to produce doxology in our life, worship to you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So this is the Passover. What a remarkable passage in the history of the world or in the history of the Hebrews. What an amazing moment. And you see so many details that God ordains by way of statute to his people. And as you see them, you see um, how he built this, this remembrance or these statutes for them to remember this really incredible moment that we just read about. The Hebrew people kept, obviously, and continue to keep this Passover meal in this celebration. And I, I find it interesting, the unleavened bread, to demonstrate how quickly they were to flee from Egypt in that moment and not have time to leaven their bread. By reminder, this, this, these statutes, this celebration is built in for them to remember this moment in history. You see, you're to eat it, right, with your robe and your shoes and your belt and your staff ready to go because at any moment, Pharaoh's gonna say, get out. And so you see the detail of this as God lays it out through Moses for the people of Israel to remember this incredible moment. And, and where have we come from as we get to this final plague in this list of plagues? Where have we come from? We've come from that moment, right, where Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? You remember that? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, here he is. God has demonstrated amazingly, not just to the Egyptians, but to the Hebrews, who he is. Amen? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And they've gone through the plagues, and now here we are at the final, the final plague. And the answer to this question for everyone is very plain. Think about it. I think people ask that question today, don't they? Who is this Christian God? Who is the Lord? What is it about your faith that, that is different? What is it about your faith that is unique? Who is this God? Why should I obey him? Why should I submit my life to him? And here we see in this passage in the book of Exodus, the center of our faith, the center of who we are is the bloody death of an innocent victim. I think it's interesting to note the bloody death in Exodus 12 of a spotless one-year-old fuzzy quadruped, right? <laughs> Why is this 
so significant. I think for us to understand the significance of the Passover, what we have to do is we have to take a biblical, a, a biblical view of the truth of this lamb. We have to take a biblical view of the story of the lamb. Because really the story of the lamb is not just this moment in Exodus 12 as it's portrayed through Moses and the, and the Hebrew people, but the story of the lamb starts in the beginning and goes to the end. It's from Genesis to Revelation. And you see it, right, in Genesis chapter 22. You see that moment as we see the story of the lamb. And, and this is important because to understand why, and I think that's the question that rises from scripture. As you read Exodus chapter 12, at least as I read it, why? Why do we have to kill this lamb and slather the blood on the doorpost? What is this all about? And, and as we look at the story of the lamb from Genesis to Revelation, you see that in Genesis chapter 22, the beginning of this story with Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember this story? Here's Abraham and Isaac, and, and they're, um, they're coming uh, together to go sacrifice. And, and, and in our context, you, you look, look at this story, and it, and it seems monstrous, doesn't it? This story seems difficult to deal with, and I think people struggle with it. Um, I think it's difficult for us to grasp this story because of our culture. I mean, you look at the story of the lamb throughout scripture, and in particular, you see this first chapter of the story of the lamb with Abraham and Isaac, and, and you think, this is crazy, this is monstrous. And, 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 and for us, in America, in the United States, in this postmodern culture, we're very radically individualistic, aren't we? I think we're, we're radically individualistic in the sense that, that we care mostly about ourselves or, or the significance of how we do as a human being. But in ancient culture, um, they, they really cared more and thought more about the life and the honor and the success of their family beyond, they did, beyond what they thought of for themselves. Does that make sense? And so you, you see in biblical culture, you see even in Abraham's day as we look at the story of the lamb, we see that, that Abraham um, cared so deeply for his descendants and so deeply for his family that, that it was not unusual. In, in Mosaic law, you see this idea in statute that um, there's a debt, that there's a debt, and the debt is owed by the firstborn son. And you see that, that all the hopes and the dreams of someone in this ancient culture would have been laid upon their firstborn son, who was set to, to take in the entire inheritance of the family. But yet at the same time, you see under statute that the debt that's owed is owed by the firstborn son, that this firstborn son is in essence God's to do with what he will. And so you see this moment in the, in the first chapter. In Genesis chapter 22, you see this moment where, where God asks him to take Isaac up to the top of the mountain. If you know the story in Genesis chapter 22, he's walking up the mountain, and, and you think to yourself, why would Abraham do this? Why isn't this strange to Abraham? But in Abraham's understanding of his relationship with God and God's relationship with us, Abraham understood that there was a debt because of sin that was owed to God, and for him to ask for his firstborn son was not unusual to him. And so Abraham begins to walk up the mountain with a hope in his heart. Abraham's question to God wasn't, why are you taking my firstborn son? Abraham's question to God was, how can you be a God that is just and also a God of the promise? Because as a God of the promise, you're going to bless me through this miracle, Isaac, 
And so how does this reconcile? But he trusted God is going to provide. Amen? You remember this story? We see here, if you take a look at it, in verse 23. We'll first go to verse 12. I'm sorry. Exodus 12, verse 12. We see, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all of the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And then jump down to verse 23 with me. If you read verse 23, it says, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow, listen to this, the destroyer, to enter your houses to strike you. The destroyer. Doesn't that sound like ominous? The destroyer is coming. There is in this moment, this preliminary temporary moment of judgment that God is demonstrating in Exodus chapter 12 where the destroyer comes and judges so there's this concept here. There's this reality here of, of the destroyer is coming. And the destroyer is coming to make good on a debt. And there's this idea of debt. And as we go back to the first chapter of the story of the Lamb, you see Abraham understands this. There's a debt. My first son owns, owes it. God can, can make good on it. And I'm praying that he provides. I think we struggle with this idea of debt, don't we? In our culture. I mean, I think for us we say, you know, here, God is about to release this awful, effective judgment that'll, it's about to sweep through. This judgment, the destroyer, is about to sweep through the greatest military power on the face of the earth and take and just and execute judgment on these people like a knife through butter. And the only solution for this destroyer is a lamb. And I think to get the context of this, I think we have to understand this idea of debt. I think for some this seems confounding, maybe confusing, maybe even offensive. Some people might look at the story in our cultural context and, and say, this is strange, this is offensive. But the reality is there is a debt. Some people would say, well, I don't know what debt. What do you mean we're all sinful? What do you mean we owe some sort of debt to God? What is this idea of judgment? Why is there all this blood? Why is there all this killing? Why is God so mean, right? Isn't that some, some of the things you would hear in response to passages like this in the Bible? Dr. Tim Keller talks about this passage a little bit, and he, he references this idea of debt, and I love a story he tells. He's like, imagine if, if you don't believe in, in, uh, in this, this debt, or you don't believe in, in sinfulness or falling short. He's like, put an invisible tape recorder around your neck so that no one can see it. Forget the Ten Commandments. Forget um, the law of the Lord. Forget what the Bible says about how we should be and how we shouldn't be. Just put an invisible tape recorder around your neck and leave it there for a week. And then at the end, let's play it. And when we play it, does anybody else live up to your standard of how they should behave and how they should act? Probably not. Probably not. There's an idea that people don't really live up to how we think they should act. Why are we so offended that we don't live up to God's standard? of how we should live and behave. What about if somebody wrongs you? Is there a debt? If, have you ever been wronged? Anybody here ever been wronged before? Is there an idea that there's something owed? 
And that debt has to be paid, right? I mean, if someone wrongs you, one of two things happens. Either you need them to pay it back by way of you hurting them or punishing them or disparaging their reputation or talking bad about them because of what they've done to you. Or the second thing would be you pay it back by forgiveness. But what does that mean? If you forgive someone for wronging you, every moment that you want to hurt them, you don't. Every moment that you want to disparage them or run down their reputation, you choose not to, right? So regardless, if someone wrongs you, there's a debt that's owed that needs to be paid. Does that make sense? Anybody there? You guys with me? All right. Think of it in the context of take a criminal, someone who commits murder or rape or burglary, goes into someone's home and violates their privacy and takes their things or hurts them. There's an idea of debt, isn't there? The idea that they owe, that they owe something. As a prosecutor, I see this. I see the reality of this in the faces of people. I, uh, I think of a homicide I prosecuted a few years ago, sitting with the mother whose daughter was murdered by her husband and, and looking across the table from her, seeing the pain in her face, there was inherently just the reality that this, this wrong that had occurred needed to be paid for. He owed something. And either he paid for it or the victims paid for it. This mother was gonna pay for it if he didn't in the loss of her child. Or society pays for it in the sense that this man's release, this man who has the inability to control himself when he gets angry is in the midst of society and it could happen again. There is an idea that when someone is wronged, when God's law is violated, that there is a debt. This isn't foreign. It's intuitively known. It's, 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 it's true. It's real. And it needs to be paid one way or the other. Does that make sense? The way that we've lived in our sin and the way that we've fallen short, we see this debt. We see the the destroyer that's coming. We see um, this moment in Exodus chapter 12 of temporary preliminary judgment that happens on the people of Egypt, the destroyer that's coming, and as he sweeps through the, the, the most powerful military force on the planet, the only thing that saves them is a lamb. The only thing that saves them is the blood of a spotless lamb. This, uh, some of the objections to this that we hear in our community would be that, well, I, I, I make my own right or wrong. I, I live by my own standards. I, I don't understand this idea. But I think as we've talked about this, I think, I think as you look at it realistically, it's very intellectually honest, it's very clear that when people are wronged, when someone's wronged, that something is owed. And I think we see here in the law of God that there's a debt. So in this first chapter, the story of the lamb, we see Abraham and Isaac, we see him walking up the mountain, we see him getting to the top of the mountain, and he's got his boy with him, 
and he, his, his boy, one of the most emotional parts of this passage is in, in Genesis chapter 20, 22, you see Isaac look to his dad and, and say, hey, dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham looks at his son and he says, God, God will provide, son. God will provide. And you see this moment of Abraham taking Isaac and putting him up onto the wood and Isaac being a much younger man and at this moment his father being pretty elderly. Had he protested, he would have won. But he didn't. He trusted his father and he got up onto the wood that he knew to be the area where something was gonna get killed. And he allowed his father to take these steps and then you hear, stop. And he stops. And there's the ram in the thicket as God has provided the sacrifice. Fast forward to the second chapter of the story of the lamb as Tim Keller would quote it. Um, And you see Exodus chapter 12. You see the people of Israel and here they are, and, and you see them um, going through the ceremony as God has laid it out. And, and I want to point out a couple of things from Exodus chapter 12 that I think are important for us to see. First is that the destroyer, as it comes through the land of Egypt, is no respecter of persons. Now, this is different than the other plagues. Um, I, I quote, uh, I think John Piper calls it egalitarianism. You see egalitarianism and you see substitutionalism here. And the, and the egalitarianism is this, that the destroyer doesn't care if you're Hebrew and doesn't care if you're Egyptian. The destroyer is coming through and everybody's the same. Now think about that for a moment because you know, the Egyptians are idol worshipers who don't serve God, who don't even respect God, don't care to know who he is. And here are the Hebrews, regardless of how they live ethically, regardless of their religion, regardless of their pedigree as the people of God, as the destroyer comes through, if you don't have the blood on the doorpost, you're all dead, right? The firstborn of every household is going to die. So the destroyer doesn't care if you're Egyptian, he doesn't care if you're Hebrew, as the destroyer comes through, everybody's the same. Because if you look at this, regardless of whether or not you're an idol-worshiping Egyptian or you're a Hebrew, you still fall short of the glory of God. You still are in need of atonement. You're still in need of redemption. Everybody is on the same playing field as their life is compared to God. And when the destroyer comes through on the day of judgment, if the blood isn't over the doorpost, matter if you're Hebrew, Egyptian, or anything else, he's no respecter of that. This plague would fall upon you regardless of your pedigree. I think that's important to look at in the face of our faith and in reference to how we feel about others in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The destroyer is no respecter of persons. If you were to go out on your own as you see Moses declare to them, stay in the house until the next morning. Because whether you were Hebrew or whether you were Egyptian, if you were to go outside that house, you would be destroyed. Your firstborn would be destroyed. So either you are outside or you are under the blood of the lamb and you must remain under the blood. The second thing I wanna see that I see from this passage as we look at this second chapter of the story of the lamb is that as they kill this lamb, 
And as they sit in the house together on the night that the destroyer comes, and as they sit across the table and they partake of the lamb together, and they partake of this ceremony as God has laid it out, and they take the blood of the spotless lamb and they put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of their house, can you imagine as the screams begin to feel, begin to fill the, the air, as the screams of people all over the land of Egypt begin to cry out as they notice the death of their firstborn, that the firstborn sons of those Hebrew families would be sitting at that table, looking at the dead lamb on their table and thinking to themselves, if this lamb wasn't dead, I would be. There's an idea here that we see from scripture that there's a substitution. God allows the lamb to die in the place of the firstborn and those young men would have known it. Those young men would have heard the screams. Those young men would have recognized and seen the slaughtered lamb on their table and recognized that that lamb is dead in my place. That lamb is dead so that I, in the midst of this judgment, can live And you see God beginning to show us in this second chapter what he intends to do for us. You see God begin to demonstrate in this type, in this symbol of of the gospel, you see him demonstrate his redemption, his payment, his just payment for sin. Because he, he, like Abraham, would have been asking in the moment when he's putting Isaac up there, how could you be just and justifier? How could you be, how could you execute justice in the midst of judgment for sin and at the same time be the God of the promise who promised me that my son would live and through him you'd bless the earth, how could this happen at the same time? And we see it again here in Exodus chapter 12 where he uses the lamb as a substitute for the firstborn son. He's no respecter of persons and there's substitution here where there's either a dead son or a dead lamb. What we recognize in this chapter is that there is debt. What we recognize in this chapter is that God is just What we recognize in this chapter is not only is he uh, demonstrating who he is by the killing of this lamb so that the destroyer would pass over the Hebrew homes in Exodus chapter 12, but what he's also demonstrating through this chapter is that another lamb needs to die for there to be the final rescue for the people of God. That atonement needs to happen so that justice can be served and he can be the justifier. So he's the God of justice and he's the God of grace. There is another lamb that needs to die. And we see in, in, in scripture as we move on really to chapter three, the story of the lamb, we see Jesus at the Passover meal. How many of you guys remember this? And we see it, I'm not sure, what's beeping, I'm sorry. I'll shut it off. This is my son's iPad and he's getting uh, text messages. There we go. So we see Jesus at the Passover meal. And, and Jesus comes and he's standing before uh, his disciples. And we see it in John chapter 13 and in other chapters in, in the gospels reflected different perspectives of this story. But you see Jesus who stands up and, and the presenter of the Passover meal, the person who would come to the Passover meal as, as really the one who would get up, they would speak and they would tell the story. 
Historically, they would tell the story of Exodus chapter 12 and the Hebrews, and, and they would begin to talk about the Lamb of God. And at the Passover meal, the presider over the meal's job is to explain it. And what, what the, the presider over this meal should have said is, this is the bread of our affliction, right? But what has Jesus said? What does Jesus say in this moment? Jesus stands up and he says, this is the bread of my body that's broken for you. Jesus declares during the Passover meal with his disciples that he's the Lamb of God. That like the Lamb in Exodus chapter 12 where they had to put the blood over the doorpost so that the destroyer would pass over, Jesus says, listen folks, this is the moment like Exodus 12 has always talked about because I'm the lamb. This is not the bread of our affliction. This is my body that's going to be broken for you. This is my blood that's going to be spilled for you. And that's what Jesus declares in this moment. He declares that he is Yahweh. He declares that he is going to be broken. He declares that this is all about him. And he lets us know what the lamb is all about. He lets us know that yes, there is a debt that each of us owe. There is something that needs to be paid. Like that murderer had wronged that mother, we have wronged God and we deserve justice. Something is owed and because God is just, it must be paid. And Jesus, like the lamb that was the substitute for the eldest son, says, my body's going to be broken so yours doesn't have to be. You're going to be able to apply the blood of the spotless lamb to your life so that the destroyer will pass over you. We notice at this Passover meal something's different because there's supposed to be bread and there's supposed to be wine but we don't see any mention of lamb at the table. We don't see any mention of the slaughtered lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table because he's standing there. We recognize that this has been God's plan from the beginning, that like Abraham and Isaac, he'll provide. Like the people in Exodus chapter 12, he will provide a substitute. And as Jesus comes and fulfills all of human history and fulfills scripture, he is the spotless lamb. And as John the Baptist recognizes it in John chapter 22 verse one, I believe, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm sorry, John 1, verse 29. Here he is. What we recognize in Scripture is that Jesus walks up the mountain like Abraham and Isaac did. What we see is that God, like Abraham, will send his son to the top of the mountain and would lay the wood on his back and what we also see is that as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
There is no voice that comes from heaven like in Genesis chapter 22 that says, stop, where a ram would be found in the thicket. But when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's silence. Because the God of the universe gave his eldest son as our substitute so that the destroyer could pass over us. This should inform every area of our lives. This should inform the way we think about ourselves in reference to God. He's provided a substitute for us where judgment would be no respecter of persons, where we would pay for our debt. He came and he substituted like that lamb in Exodus chapter 12 for us. It should inform our gratefulness and our worship. There should not be a moment where we struggle with worshiping God with our lives in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? It should inform the way we think about others. It really should. There is no place for self-righteous arrogance in the body of Christ, is there? There is no place for finger pointing to others who somehow don't have the Holy Spirit regenerating their lives so they don't behave in the world in a way that we would like them to. They act differently. They don't live up to the law of God. But we recognize that apart from the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lamb of God for our sin, we're no different. The Hebrews were no different than the Egyptians and you're no different than anyone else. You're bought with the blood of Jesus. You live in unmerited favor and grace given to you by God. How could we ever react with self-righteous arrogance toward others? We should be the most loving group of people on the face of the earth because we have been so loved. Not by a God who says he loves us, but by a God who shows it. He's shown his love in this. That while we were sinners, he died for us. It should inform and transform our view of suffering. Because out of the greatest suffering by an innocent, the greatest good has come. As we struggle and as we suffer, he knows, amen? And he's with us. The Passover there's so much more detail in the 52 verses we read that we could talk about. But boiled down, Jesus is that lamb on our behalf. And it's a story that has been told from generation. In, in the last chapter, the lamb of God is on the throne. Amen? And he's worshiped for eternity. So as we do this tonight, as we reflect on this tonight, why don't we in view of how we should see each other, in, in light of this, in view of how we should see ourselves in relationship to God, in light of this, we get to have communion together, to recognize as a family together what Jesus has done for us. We get to have our revised Passover meal as Christians as we recognize that the Passover is about remembering Jesus and his body that was broken for us and Jesus, his blood that was spilled and put over the doorposts of our lives, amen? Let's stand up and pray together. Father, we thank you for the story of the lamb. We thank you for who you are. 
We thank you that you have provided the substitutionary sacrifice for the debt that we owe. And we are so grateful. We worship you because you are the only one who deserves it. There is no other God before you. You are a great God. You are a just God. And most importantly, God, you're loving. Your love, not based on us, not based on our performance. Your agape love that's based on your choice to love us. While we don't understand it, we receive it and we worship you for it and we remember who you are and what you've done tonight and your sacrifice for us on the cross. Jesus, we look to the cross as that first son looked at the lamb on the table. We look at the cross and we recognize that apart from your death, we would be dead. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.